Welcome to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast with Petra and Perks. This podcast is simple. We want to go beyond bubble bath wellbeing and think deeply about the world we live in and what it really takes to thrive. This includes things like activism at work, challenging the cult in culture, and of course, having brave conversations that lead the way in building a future of work that we want to be part of, including making benefits inclusive for all. So let's dive into our next episode. Welcome everyone to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. I'm so excited today because we've got another angle on the wellbeing lens, which is thinking about DEI and thinking about the intersection in the workplace, but I think just where the world is going and how things are changing. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this intro justice because my guest today has just so many accolades and it's always a bit cringe, isn't it? When you're on the other side and you're like, oh my goodness, all the things. Um, but Honorary doctor is a recent one, right? Um, yes, I've also yes. noticed MBE. Um, you, you're currently the Chief Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Warner Brothers Discovery. I know you've had roles at EY, at Adidas, at City of London Police. I mean, there are so many things that you do, including a TEDx speaker as well. Um, please welcome Asif Sadiq, uh, MBE, to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so, it's so good to have you. Um, before we started rolling, you were talking a little bit about what DEI used to be. I'm curious about what have you seen in the span of your career as far as progress, if we want to put it that way? Yeah, no, I, I think there's been um, a, lot of, a lot of progress. Uh, you know, I, I can reflect back 20 years uh, when I used to work for the police service and uh, DNI used to be, we'd put a stall outside the police station hand out a few key fobs, a few balloons, and we could go back inside and the job was done. Um, I think in the last couple of years, there's been a huge, huge shift where there's there's really a, a better understanding, not a, not a perfect understanding, but a better understanding of its relevance within the workplace, how it intersects into different parts of our business, whether it's from a commercial perspective, from a staff perspective, from a well-being perspective, across the piece. Um, and I think a lot of people are ready to engage uh, so the doors, what, what I, I usually refer to it as, you know, the door went completely open and now it's sort of halfway back. So it's not shut, but there's, of course, with the current world we live in, with all the changes, the financial challenges many organizations are facing, um, there is still opportunities. It's just how we, how we navigate them. So I've got loads of questions just about how do we navigate them. Um, but before I go there, I'm always curious about the the role my guests played as children um, yeah. and, and sort of kind of seeing, did that impact who we became in later life? If you were to look back on your childhood, what was the role that, you know, you got given as a, as a kid? <laughs> do you know what was interesting? Uh, one of the things that always, um, for me, really sort of positioned me in a lot of ways to try to make a difference for the future was, as a uh, as a young boy growing up, school, all that sort of piece, um, being neuro neurodiverse, so I'm, I'm dyslexic, and um, it was a challenge. I was last in class, was the kid who could never spell, was the kid who was always told that he's never going to amount to anything, can't be anything, um, and that really, you know, I felt that I was a lot more than that, and I felt that I could do stuff, just not the way everyone else did things. Um, and that was that was a huge piece, feeling left out, not being part of something, not feeling included because of something I could not help, something that was not something I, and I didn't choose not to be able to spell. I didn't choose not to be able to read properly, but I was left behind because of that. So for that, for, for that reason, for me, 
and the workplace and the career I'm in now, it's so important to create that equity and that inclusive work environment that no one feels that they're treated differently because of any element of diversity that they might have. Oh, beautiful. And do you feel like there were one or two people that really believed in you or showed you role model that there was a different way to be? Completely, completely. And, and, you know, there's always those few people who encourage you through that, who, you know, tell you you can be more. Um, and, you know, I still remember that, I, you know, there was, there was all the teachers who absolutely hated me um, because they felt that I was very disruptive, which I was. And it was based on, I didn't want to be the person who's asked to, you know, stand up in front of the class and read something. So I, disruption was the easiest option for me. Um, but there was always that teacher, uh, um, you know, who would pull me aside and say, you know, you know, you can do more than this. You are better. I know you've got it in you. You just need to give it a chance. And at the time, you know, it probably went in one year out the other. But then the older I got, it really started to mean something. I started to believe that actually there is something in me. I just need to apply it in a different way and, and try to do things in a different way to sort of achieve success. But I love that um, disruption as a kid. So like being the difficult one or the one that's messing up learning for other people. And then you kind of turn it into a career, right? Exactly. Where, where you're an activist, right? Kind of completely. fighting for the underdog in a way. Yeah, completely. completely. How interesting. Um, and so your, your TEDx talk, I believe, is, is about how do we get this right? I don't know how many years ago it was, but sure. what are some, I mean, it's a loaded question, but what are some of, some of the key themes to, to getting the DEI um, agenda right? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's so many elements to it, but I think one of the biggest, biggest things is how do we create environments that have learning built into it, right? And what do I, what do I mean by learning is human interaction. As humans, we learn through speaking to each other. We learn through exploring our differences. And, you know, I, I've, of course, you know, created programs, learning programs, all sorts of stuff. But my biggest, biggest thing I feel that really drives change is people exploring, um, you know, uh, difference, people asking each other questions. And right now, unfortunately, there's so much fear of saying the wrong thing. I don't know the terminology. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, but we must create environments where, you know, we are really... Um, going in deeper into that learning, exploring different, and when we get it wrong, how do we make it an opportunity to learn rather than cancel someone? Um, and I, I, I talk a lot, and interestingly, I've got another TED, uh, TEDx coming up uh, later on this year, oh, which, is, um, which is focused on calling in, not calling, in, not calling out. Um, and it's really about how do we create education moments? So, so yeah, so I think there's a lot in the DEI space, but I think the biggest learning is having conversations, speaking to each other, um, exploring what that difference means because no two people are the same. And this is some of the misconceptions in this space. The assumption, right? Like, you know, every every woman needs more confidence or every this group right. needs this. It's not true. You know, even what matters to me from a diversity perspective is not the same as my brother. And my brother looks very similar to me. Um, and even more than that, what matters to people's employees? So I always say this, what mattered to me from a diversity perspective 20 years ago is not the same today. And that's the same for every single employee in a workplace. What matters when they join, different life events, different things will change what matters uh, for them at different points. Like for me now, I mean, 20 years ago, race was a huge piece. Uh, I was young, you know, still struggling with my identity um, and, and, you know, police stopping us, all that kind of stuff. Fast forward 20 years, I've got two young kids. So being a present dad, a dad who's there, that's really important to me. 
I'm getting older. And as I, I, I'd like to think I'm young, but I am getting older. Um, and with age, unfortunately, I'm inheriting a number of disabilities. So disability inclusion is huge for me. So to truly understand that, you need to understand my unique identity. And that's the piece within the DI space that's missing. We assume what we see is the only diversity someone has, um, or we assume what they might have told us three years ago is still important to them today. It's not. We need to con constantly have that conversation to understand what matters to our people. There's, and so there's difference everywhere. And I love what you're saying just around curiosity, around learning. Now, in this interesting evolved hybrid world right where where you know we're talking about belonging being a real key for well-being right and even for performance and a number of things and this is really the learning connects to belonging right when we can understand each other we can um, see each other we can collaborate but are you seeing that it's harder to do in the world that we're in like what are your thoughts there yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, it's great you mentioned belonging. I, I talk a lot about belonging and the importance of moving beyond DEI all the way to belonging because we need to create environments where people belong, where they can be their authentic self, they have psychological safety, they can give a different opinion without repercussions, all that kind of stuff. And it's great for businesses because people who belong are three and a half times more productive, innovative, creative, all that sort of stuff. Um, but to your exact question, I think the key thing is that in, in any modern workplace, we can create a sense of belonging anywhere. We just need to be more willing to have some of those discussions. Now, it won't be the same in every single place, um, but belonging is not determined by one factor. It's more about how we engage and how we create those psychologically safe environments where people can be their authentic self. And that can be applied to you know, a company that's working hybrid, a company that's working fully remote, or a company that everyone's in person. Belonging can be created. It just requires effort and really putting that attention on what the gaps are and what needs to be done. I actually agree with that. So I've got a fully remote team. We kind of grew within the pandemic and then there was no point getting overheads because of course we're a small team. Um, and you know the team report that feeling of psychological safety of being, and of course we should be leading by example as a mental health and well-being organization. But it means we've really experimented and gotten curious about what was working for people and and what wasn't. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic was very different than now, even though we're still a fully remote team, right? We we gain our connection in a variety of places from work and and without work. So. There is something about continuing that conversation because I do see some organizations strategy done, right? This is what we do. This is the framework. Just keep going back to that. And of course, there are some principles, but the world of work is changing so quickly. So it's like bringing it to life. It's those action pieces that I see as being the, the, the challenges. What do you think are the key challenges when it comes to um, bringing some of this stuff to life? Uh, I think exactly what you've said. And I think the thing is, we focus too much on what the textbook says, or you know, what 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 are the what are the key things we need to implement, and then almost uh, assume it will be done and it will fix yeah. itself. Um, I, I really believe in in a, in a concept of you know we need to be intentionally inclusive, uh, and we need to intentionally focus on everything we do that conscious inclusion. Um, so when we make decisions, spending a few seconds reflecting on is this decision inclusive? Does this have an impact on any 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 group? Is it the right decision? And just even if it's 10 seconds, that 10 seconds, when if you create that system where you spend 10 seconds before a decision, you will create a, um, a, a habit of challenging your thinking 
and it will start being more inclusive. And I think that's one of the things that we miss out on because we assume because we've done X, it's solved for Y and Z. But we know the truth is that even if you do X, it still requires a constant sort of trying to um, understand and trying to implement and embed. It takes a real commitment, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so what do you say to the leaders who, because we know there's some out there, right? Plenty out there who are like, oh, really? Like these snowflakes or, you know, um, all the phrasing, whatever it might be. Aren't we making a big deal out of these things? Shouldn't we just let business be about business? What do you say to them? Well, I, I think the biggest thing there is DI is business. Um, you know, this this concept or this perception, it's a nice thing to do when we've got a bit of time or it's that, you know, that, that nice fluffy thing that, you know, yeah, just makes extra. people feel happy. Yeah, it's none of that, right? We know for a fact, and, and, and I say we, you know, there's many eminent universities, uh, colleges, institutions that have done research that showcase that companies that are more diverse and inclusive and have that sense of belonging have better output, more profitability, better engagement with communities uh, that they serve, better products, more innovation, and so on. And the truth is, when you think of the future, this is a critical part. I, I was reading uh, a survey recently where I think they surveyed 10,000 Gen Z um, and 87% almost said that they would not align to a company or an organization or a product or a service that didn't have the same values they have when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So looking at that and looking at the changing nature of the world around us, if we do not adapt, we will not have a future workforce or future products, customers uh, or consumers. And therefore, it's a huge piece that we really truly understand that this is not an add-on. And also, I mean, this is my big thing, and I say this to a lot of leaders, please don't spend five minutes before the meeting talking about DNI and then saying, well, we've done DNI, let's get back to business, or let's get into business. No, your whole business is DNI. So weave it in naturally, use the language within what you do. So if you're doing a presentation about a new product, have DNI language in there. If you're talking about sales, build in DNI language so that the the language around DNI, we start associating it with business and success. Beautiful. So it's just intrinsic to our daily interactions rather than like, oh, we, we spend five minutes on it or we've got this awareness exactly. day. Or, and I guess it starts with education. And Indeed. like you said, you've been 20 years, you know, um, banging the drum as far as education. But things are changing as well quite quickly. As you say, the, the new generation coming up. I had a question around networks. So lots of businesses have networks, right? For a variety of things. You mentioned a few disability, you know, race, it might be women, it might, whatever, it might be a a range of things. And do you think that these networks are effective or as effective as they could be? Um, Yes and no. So, so, and I, and I say that with the, with the piece around networks are amazing. I think they do a great job. I want to acknowledge, you know, there's some really good networks out there. I think what, what, what is important, though, is to really reevaluate what is the purpose of the network. And I see it as threefold in my mind. Um, the first is to create a sense of community for an underrepresented group. So when someone joins an organization and there aren't many people like them in the organization, a network's a great support mechanism for someone to, to be able to go to, to rely upon, to share their experiences with or others who have similar experiences. The second piece is around creating a platform for people to learn who are not part of uh, that group. Because that piece around allies wanting to learn, people who want to learn through a safe space, right? You might want to learn more about race, for example, but you don't know what how to do it, but a network's a great 
place or LGBTQ plus and a network's a great place. So the second piece is about creating an environment or a safe space for others who don't have the same characteristic to be able to come learn and grow. And the third piece is about supporting a business to achieve its objectives. And this is a really interesting piece. So it's not about challenging the business in a way that you can't do this or you can't do that. It's about saying, all right, you're doing this. How's a better way of doing it? Have you considered this? Have you considered the impact on this community? Because these very individuals who are part of a network are the communities that businesses are trying to reach out to. They represent those communities. So you've got a great opportunity to have those staff who understand your business within your business. So businesses should utilize them to drive change. But it has to be a relationship where you're working together, being critical friends. So challenging, of course, where you think something's not working, but doing it from the mindset of, as a business, how can we grow from here? That's so profound. And I think so many people miss that third point, right? Mm -hmm. So they maybe get the community um, and and that second one, but but don't necessarily think, how are we collaborating? Like we're all on the same side, right? So how do we move the needle and advise and support in order to, to create change? One of, one of the problems I see, and of course, I'm more with the well-being mental health side, but there's that intersection, is the silo effect, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So we've got great work going on, but it's in silos. And what I mean by that is DEI are, are, have their own separate um, kind of strategy, and they're working towards those goals. Well-being mental health have a separate strategy, and others may have, you know, culture and engagement. There might, might be other ones as well. Um, what we're seeing is a dip in engagement, right? That's kind of the buzzword for lots of well-being leads is like, hey, we're putting all this stuff on, um, but there's less engagement than there was before. I mean, I could just stand on a soapbox and say, is it still fit for purpose? Do you need to evolve what you're doing? Is it? Are you showing up in, in the right way? But my question to you is around that intersection. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about, I'm seeing more organizations combine a strategy around well-being, mental health, and DEI as a, a kind of a, a shared force. And then maybe sure. the action planning is slightly different and sure. some who have it separate. And of course, whatever we do, getting it right would be having a coordinated comms effect, right? So that it, people on, on the receiving end are not getting an initiative every day and then, you know, they just can't keep up. So what do you think about kind of combining those or keeping them separate? What are your thoughts? Sure. I, I mean, I think combining them is definitely the way forward or at least engaging or having that sort of shared understanding. Right. Uh, largely because, you know, when I think of mental health, well-being, I think about the differences from a diversity perspective as well to those very topics, who engages, how they engage. Let's take mental health um, as an example. I know for a fact there's a huge stigma attached to mental health in South Asian communities. So if you as an organization are offering a product or a service and in only one way, it's not going to capture everyone because that community might not engage because they're not comfortable engaging. So it might need a different level of engagement and work to try to bring them on board. There's also other elements around, you know, how certain communities perceive some of these things. Again, um, not to stereotype a whole community, but I know certain faith-based communities don't even acknowledge the existence of mental health. It's seen more as a, you must be possessed or the, you know, there's the, the devil's in you or something like that. Now, again, if we're going to work with those communities or get them to engage with our products, services, or the support mechanisms we have, we have to create a different pathway for them to come in. Same with well-being. How many of our well-being efforts are geared towards a certain uh, generation? Yet we know in a modern workplace, you have up to five generations. How many of those things are aligned to that culturally? How many well-being things are 
relevant for every single group. So I think as the world of work has diversified a lot more, and I think it's, you know, it's not perfect, but there's a lot of diversity from so many different elements. What we do from a mental health and well-being element should be linked into that so that we understand how better to serve, engage our workforce when it comes to mental health and well-being. And this has just made me think of the enormity of your role. And um, you're, I know you're an influencer, you're, you're on sort of um, doing your next TEDx, you're, you're, you've recently become an honorary doctor, like so many different things. You're a busy man. Um, and you've got a co- like a global lens, right? So already, just if we think of the UK, there's so much diversity, right? And then we throw in, you know, other countries and locations, which have vastly different, like, where do you even start in tackling the DEI topic? Completely. And and that's such a big piece, right? And also understanding as we think of it from a global perspective, how do we ensure we don't go in with our dominant culture mindset? And, you know, generally the US, the UK, we have that habit. I mean, I've done it, you know, unfortunately, because I'm human and I make mistakes. But where I go in with my lens and expect, well, culturally we do this or this, why are you not getting it? The truth is the world is changing and people now um, want you to acknowledge their differences, understand their cultural preferences, the way they see things. So it's about meeting halfway. And I think we need to learn that that's going to be more and more relevant. It's the same when you think from a business perspective, marketing perspective. I speak to so many you know, people from all over the world when it comes to sort of engagement with products, services, and so on. And what I get is people want to see themselves in that stuff. You know, there was a time I can, I can remember... You know, people would want to buy only products from the UK, right? They'd want something from Marks and Spencer's or they'd want this from there or they'd want a German car. You know, now people are like, well, you know, someone could be sitting in Africa and they're like, well, I want to see something that's relevant to me from my country. It's about me. I don't want to live the dream of, you know, the US or the UK or the American dream or the, you know, the, the dream that we might sell here. So that piece is so fascinating because people now want to be acknowledged, accepted for who they are. And also culturally, people are on a different path or a different point in that journey when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We should support them. We should work with them to get them to where we want them, to, especially as organizations, because we have um, a certain sort of level of what we expect from a DEI perspective. However, it's for them to go on that journey for us to give them the tools. We can't force them on that journey. We need to support them and to- take them through um, the different elements. And, and then within that, there's language as well. You know, I, I, I was speaking to someone recently, and for example, uh, in France, there's certain places they still use the term handicapped. Now, we don't use it in the UK. I know we don't use it in the US. Uh, however, it's an evolution that France has to go on to understand why the term is probably outdated and, and, and you know, needs to move on. Then you've got languages. You know, when we think about, um, let's say, gender neutral language, uh, you know, we can apply it to English. There's certain languages that have no terms for gender neutral uh, language. So how do we support them in evolving? So again, it's just understanding those nuances, those differences helps us better engage, but also work with our global communities to drive change. So you're so right about language and, and it's almost the simple little thing sometimes. And yes, you have to have that global strategy, but it's like, how are we delivering that in ways that people can understand? Um, I did a training session a few years back in Germany uh, and, you know, we're talking about prevention a lot. So we talk about good mental health. And so I was trying with the same pitch to be like mental health and good mental health. And it was like we were doing it in English, but people just didn't quite get it. And it's because the translation is very different. 
And so they very much talk about psychology, but they don't use the phrasing mental health. Whereas, you know, we equate that to like physical health and then we try and kind of bring bring the the, the kind of point home around good mental health. Anyway, good learning curve, right? To ask and, the question. And, you know, it's fun. I mean, I worked out in Germany as well, as you know, um, for uh, Adidas and yeah. it was exactly the same. There's also like, like race means something completely different in German, um, but also culturally people were a lot more direct. Now, again, when I was thinking of solutions there, I had to realize that people will not do all the pleasantries we sometimes do in the UK. They'll be a lot more direct. Um, and again, it's different. It's rude here, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But you've got to understand that, you know, no, why should they be like me? It's about meeting halfway and understanding, well, I, I love the pleasantries. Someone there might not love the pleasantries, but how can we still respect each other's differences and still come together to produce exceptional results? You mentioned fear earlier, which I know stops us from asking questions because we're worried we'll get it wrong. And there's, there's a whole side of things. But I think a, a lot of people in a post-pandemic world are in survival mode again. And there's a lot of talk about burnout. And, you know, I really think that's a, a result of some of that kind of fear-based um, living that many of us have been doing for, for a number of years. And then, of course, we've had George Floyd and a variety of incidents that kind of triggered a bigger um, conversation around this. And there's so much fear. So fear on this topic, but fear in general that I think is affecting people's mental health. Um, and you need a safe place. So, so I'm from a blended family. My dad's black. My mom's white. You know, I've got family in the U.S. We're all colors of the rainbow in my family. And we've got this beautiful WhatsApp group um, with all sorts of us in there. And I can be so like blunt in saying, hey, this just happened, right? And um, I was thinking about it from this lens. And is that the wrong thing to think? And then you'll have like all the generations and all the locations kind of saying, well, it's not great because of this, because it would make someone feel like this, right? And I almost wish that people had that safety, because I know I'm not going to be judged by it, right? Um, and we're re genuinely trying to help each other. But at work, I mean, there's so many barriers, aren't there, just to asking the question to begin with, right? I mean, what, what do you see there? Completely. And I, I think society is divided, right? Uh, unfortunately, now you have to pick a side. Either you're very far left or very far right. You can't be in the middle. We can't disagree. I think the first thing we must acknowledge is the beauty of diversity is we think different. Like we could right. disagree on something, right? But we can still respect each other, respect our differences and work together. And that's the piece we miss out on. And then the fear of getting it wrong, generations, different perspectives, everything we've just discussed, put all that into a mix. We're not going to all think the same. We will say things that might have a stereotype attached to it or a bias or, you know, something might come out the wrong way. The critical thing is, how do we make those learning opportunities? So I'm big on, let's not go in and just, you know, straight away cancel someone. Let's call them in. Let's have an opportunity. If someone says something, how do we tell them, you know, Thank you so much. You know, I know you probably meant good by this, but that came across to me in this way. It had this impact on me. I just wanted you to understand. And that you would go away think, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. And, you know, I, I will, you know, in the future, think about it in that way. But if you just cancel someone, all that does is shut, shut them down. They will never touch the topic. They will still think that way. So it will never address the underlining issue. Um, and that, that, that's quite, quite, quite problematic. And also, I think the truth is, how do we create a safety net? And I say this to a lot of people because like everyone else, I make mistakes. But what I do going into questions or going into asking about something which I'm not sure about, 
I create a safety net for me. And one of the questions, you know, I'm very inquisitive about people's backgrounds, their heritage and so on. And I know that question can get people worked up. So what I do is I go in, when I'm asking the question, I say, you know, I'm really inquisitive to know more about your background. I don't know what the right way of asking is. I'm going to ask how I think it's best. But if I get it wrong, please do correct me as I'm on a learning journey. That's it. And do you know what, Petra, if someone then turns around and says, well, that's not the right way of asking, I'll be like, thanks so much. As I said, I'm on a learning journey. And if it's the right way, great. But I've created a safety net for myself to, if the conversation doesn't go as planned, or if I get it wrong, I can fall back on that. And that's what we need to do. That's what leaders, staff, colleagues need to do. When you go into a conversation that you don't know enough about, don't try to Google it. Don't try to you know assume what you think it should be. Just go in and be honest and say, look, I don't know, but I'm learning. And this is what I think, or this is what I, you know, I know or I feel is the best way of asking. But if it's wrong, let me know. Beautiful. So what it, what that's doing is taking responsibility for the environment, really creating a learning um, environment where you are genuinely open to being wrong, to, to getting information. And if everyone could, and this applies to mental health as well, like how do we ask if someone's depressed, right? Or how do we check in about their mental health? Um, so often we might say something that could put the walls up, right? And so I advise leaders often to, to say, I might get this wrong. Um, but I was curious about, right? Um, and especially checking in about things like, are you suicidal or some of the more extreme sort of things? It's like people are worried that um, if they ask the wrong way, it's going to blow up and people hate conflict, don't they, these yeah. days? I mean, they, they love a keyboard warrior, but not oh, the actual conflict. 100%. And, and actually, just the point you raised about mental health, it's such a powerful one because I think one of the things I found uh, in my time is you know, even with mental health, and, and as I mentioned, I started my career early on in the in the police service. And during that time, one of the challenges was that, you know, any element of mental health, if someone said they've got mental health or anything like that, it, it was either you're fine, just get, you know, the whole sort of macho male sort of, you'll be fine. Or it was the, the immediate response was take time off, take time off, take time right. off. And I still remember, you know, many, many years ago, there was someone who was really struggling, was going through a divorce, um, you know, was really struggling with their mental health. It was coming up to Christmas and they were told to take time off when they raised that, you know, I'm struggling. They were told take three weeks off. And unfortunately they took their life during that three weeks because the last thing they needed was time off. What they needed was conversations, someone understanding, and their solution would have been why don't you come into work? We've, you know, we've got people in, you'll have company, you won't be alone during Christmas. So understanding that is so important. And that all starts from having conversations. There is no textbook in the DI space, in the mental health space. There isn't a textbook response. And utilizing the textbook response without enough thought can result in a very negative outcome. I got, I literally got chills because I hear these stories all the time, right? And you must hear extreme stories in all sorts of ways. And those stories of managers getting nervous about like checking in on someone's mental health or just general, like, how's your family? Like what's going on? And the assumption that if they say they're struggling, I'm going to have to let them have duvet days and take time off, right? Like as in, as if that's the only solution. And really what it does is you're outsourcing the problem is how I see it. Yeah. Or it's like, call this helpline, go hey, there. Resources on say, the call this helpline, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, there is a place for those things, course, but not as a trade for human connection, belonging, and choice, right? 
So basically it's saying, here's some options. What do you think would be best for you? We'd love to have you in, right? Exactly. It's that choice. It's giving a, you know, a, a suite of options. Same in the DNI space, a suite of options. What do you think is the best solution for this situation? And that's the piece. So it's not that one, you know, it's not one path, not another path, or, you know, the helplines don't work. The helplines are great, very good. But is that what someone needs? They might really need that and really benefit from it. Or someone might need the time off because sometimes time off is needed. Sure. It's just exploring options with an individual and having an honest conversation. But you don't need to be an expert on mental health. You need to be human and engage on a human level. And you don't need to be an expert in DEI to no, engage on no, a human level completely. and be curious. Completely. So of all the things that you've done, and there are many, uh, what are you the most proud of? What am I the most proud of? Um, I, th I think probably um, staying resilient. And I know that's not a specific thing, but I say that because sometimes, you know, you know, people look at your, you know, LinkedIn or what you've achieved and it's a lot of success, right? And it's amazing. But I always say that if I was to list my failures, I would take down the whole website would probably collapse LinkedIn. There's that many failures in the background. But you know, that resilience of you fail, you try again, you fail, you try again, something doesn't work your way, you do it another way. Um, and I am proud of that because it w I had a lot of pit stops along the way where I could have just given up. But I, I made it a personal mission not to give up because even when I was told I'm wrong, I'm not right. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, having spent a lot of my younger years being told I'm not good enough, I refuse to accept anything I do is never good enough. I, I accept though, it might be not right for the time or what we're trying to achieve. So I adapt, I change, I come back and try again. Um, so that piece for me is, is probably one of the big things because I, 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 there was a lot of times in my life where I thought, this is it, I can't do this anymore. Or, you know, this is the point where I give up or I just, you know, accept this is the reality. But I, yeah, that resilience allowed me to continue. So we know, as in me and you know anyway, that resilience is built through those experiences, right? And it's the little times. Every time you, 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 you almost give yourself an evidence bank that actually last time I did it and it worked and it, I got through, right? And you, you build it over time. But is there any particular thing that you think, because it's a mindset, right? And, and you, you're, you're like, um, it's worth it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep getting up. What influenced that, do you think? I think it was, um, you know, I, I think it was the, the, the biggest thing for me was recognition, right? So, so the first time, I, I still remember the first, first award I won was Police Officer of the Year, um, you know, out of, I can't remember how many officers at the time, a couple of thousand. Um, and that was huge for me because it was recognition that what I do matters, what I do makes a difference, and it's being recognized. And that almost then was, I've done this, I can do this. And then there was the next thing. So, so I think that was the one key critical point, the first recognition. And then it almost gave me that belief in myself that I didn't have, then allowed me to always reflect back on that. And by the way, I want to be really honest with all your listeners. Do I, do I still have, you know, um, imposter syndrome? Yeah. Do I still doubt myself? Yeah. You know, every day it happens. It's natural. But what I tend to do is acknowledge two things. Number one, when I think of imposter syndrome, I don't think I'm the one who suffers with it. I think it's environments that create it for me. The second piece is every time I think I'm not good enough or I've not done enough, I reflect back on what have I achieved. And then I'm like, well, actually I have. You know, I, I got that. I got that recognition. I got you know, the MBE, the doctorate, the only doctorate, this and that. And it allows me then to believe in myself. So I think that's, yeah, that's been my, my sort of journey. 
It's beautiful. And it, it's because it, sometimes people look at, you know, people like you, and of course they see the accolades and, and all the things you've achieved and uh, you've got a young family, you know, a picture of success, right? <laughs> uh, and they don't see the, the human experience, which is the struggle, the frustrations, especially in the DEI space, right? There must be countless times where you have tried to influence change and some idiot is just saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and you just want to scream. Um, there must be so many times. No, no, th- th- there is. And, and sometimes it's not even the workplace. You know, it, 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 it's, um, it's fascinating because when you think of success, when you think of, you know, when you are at the top of where you should be and, you know, working for a big company like Warner Brothers Discovery as the chief diversity officer, sitting on the leadership team is huge. Um, but then there's still events that happen, unfortunately, based on some elements of diversity I have outside of work that constantly push me back. And, and it's, Sometimes it's very hard to to even deal with that because success meant that you you're never treated unfairly when you walk into a shop. It's mm-hmm. meant that when you're driving, you're not stopped by the police because you're successful. But unfortunately, I am on many occasions constantly reminded that you can be as successful as you know you can you can have that picture perfect dream of what success would have been. But there's always people who will still stereotype you, will still doubt you. Uh, you know, the police will pull you aside and not believe it's your car. Or, you know, you'll go into a shop and the security guard will follow you around because you assume you're going to steal something. So those kind of experiences still push you back. Um, and I think that's the big thing for me is realizing that, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, you can achieve all the success, but society still isn't at the same par. Or your recognition, um, that there is elements that are still not fair. Mm, yeah. And you've got to manage that. And I guess focus on what's in your control. Right. Exactly. What are the pieces? Exactly. That it's very in? easy to be dragged backwards. You take two steps forwards and then three steps backwards, right? So it's it's holding on to the things that you believe are the positives and things that you're doing well, and not 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 letting the, the you know the, the moments that drag you back um, hold you back. So what 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 are your non negotiables? Like, what do you do to invest in in yourself and your own well being? Yeah. So I mean, I think for me, well being is a number of things, right? I, I define well being to me is about giving myself that space, giving myself that time, designing what works for me together with my work. I, I don't, you know, live and die for work. My work is important to me, but it's also understanding my family is important to me and other elements are important to me. And I strike that balance. Now, what the balance I strike will not work for everyone, but I make it work for me. You know, I, I, I work late because I, you know, look after a global global team. So I start later and that works for yeah. me. And I have a break in between when the kids come back from, from school so I can spend time with them and then I continue working. So, so that kind of piece is huge for me, that flexibility I have in my organization to be able to champion that. Um, and it's also just taking time out when I feel the need to. Um, and I'm, again, not, not fearful of doing it. I'm not... Um, I don't feel that I constantly have to prove myself. If I feel there's days when, you know, it's all getting to me, I will take time out. I will just say, do you know what? I, I need, need to take a few hours. Uh, you know, I just need to get myself together or I need to get my thoughts together or I need just time to reflect. And, and that's fine. So I give myself permission to do that. Now, of course, I want to acknowledge because every time I say this or, you know, talk to anyone about this, like, but it's easy for you because you sit, you know, you're in a leadership position. It is easy, but there's also a lot of demands. But, you know, if I replicate this, if, if, if I really sort of share this with, with my teams and others, they will replicate that behavior. They will feel that they've got permission as well. Not that they need permission, by the way. You know, it's permissions granted from the beginning. But by me showcasing that, hopefully they can see that it's okay. 
It's okay to give time to yourself. It's okay not to be nonstop, right? And, you know, I, 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 it's interesting when, when people used to, I can still remember this many years ago, you know, when you go for an interview and, and people, or when you see a CV, people's hobbies would be, I play football, I do this, like all those great hobbies, right? Yes. I used to, of course, I used to list the same things, but my hobbies were lounging, watching, you know, back-to-back TV or doing this, but you'd never put it on a CV because the perception was that's not something you should do. Now I'm very comfortable saying, well, actually, you know what, for me, giving time to myself might be that I'll sit eating chocolate ice cream, watching, you know, 10 hours of uh, TV, and that's fine. It's just giving yourself permission that what works for you, you allow it. It doesn't mean that, you know, I, I could have given you a whole story around, I, I run 10 miles every day. Nothing wrong with yeah, running yeah. 10 miles. It's great. That's not what I do. So it's understanding what is important to me. That's so powerful. I had literally had a conversation recently with a real junior associate in a law firm who, who said, sometimes it's okay to say I'm going to the gym or, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm doing something like that. She went, it's not okay to say I'm going to watch TV for 30 minutes during my break. Right. But it's like, what's the pause button. Right. And everybody's different and it should be, you know, about you, but also you say it's easy as a senior person, but how many senior people have I seen who I say, who do you invest in yourself? And they might go boxing or, or you know, do play golf or whatever the hell they do. And then I say, how many of your people know that you do those things? And they go, oh no, I wouldn't put it in my calendar. I don't want them to know, right? Yeah, completely. And you know, actually, you've touched on a really important point, which you know, I, uh, you know, in my humble sort of uh, knowledge that I have, uh, would would say Doctor. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but you know a lot of leadership programs, leadership, you know whether you look at some of the big ones like Harvard and all that, great programs. But what did a lot of what was leadership a couple of years back? It was all about a leader is someone who's strong, has all the answers, doesn't show vulnerability, never gets anything wrong. If anything, what the last couple of years have shown us is people look for leaders who are vulnerable, leaders who show a bit more of a human side to them, leaders who don't have all the answers but are ready to listen. And those elements are more important to people. So I really truly believe that people will respect or people will expect future leaders to show that human side. You know, I, I, I to give you a very quick example, I, I remember a leader at one of the organizations I worked for, he used to do a monthly report, uh, an update, and it was all about how much money that company was making, how much they were losing and so on. And one year I asked him to talk a bit about his family when he does the report. And he said, no, 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 we don't do that. We don't do that. It's all professional. I'm like, please do. And he said, well, I haven't got anything to talk about. Uh, I'm like, everyone has some element of diversity. It's not limited right. to one group. He said, well, I dropped my daughter off to university in Scotland. I'm like, mention that. So he started the first paragraph just saying, this weekend, I went to drop my daughter off. It was very emotional for me. And then he went into his you know, profits and losses. Um, the click rate went from 5% click open rate to 55% only because now he was human. He wasn't this person you see in brochures or in annual reports. He was a human person that others could relate to. And that human-centric leadership is the future of leadership. I mean, if we want to talk about building psychological safety, those are the ways, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's humanity. And of course, there's so much evidence to, to back it up. Um, I've got one more big question for you. And then um, I'd love to know where people can find you, that sort of thing. And I ask this to all of my guests. So wherever you take it is is great. So what's the most radical change that you think we need when it comes to well-being, DEI, and the focus on mental health for the future? I think the biggest change we need is everyone understanding that it's every single person's responsibility. 
I think that's the big piece. There's a lot of reliance on, you know, hey, the DEI team will do this or the wellbeing team will do this. Every single one of us can champion it. And why? Because it impacts every single one of us. None of those things. Diversity is not for one group over another. Well-being is not for one group over another. Neither is mental health. We can all suffer with any of those or be part of any of those elements. Therefore, each and every one of us has a responsibility to do our piece for it. Not be an expert, but be engaged in the topic from your own authentic perspective. That's so beautiful because I see some people, and we could say the talent retention issue is part of this, you know, sitting around and complaining a lot, right? Oh, they, we had, they don't do this and this hasn't happened and they don't think about this and why did they do that, right? But aren't engaged in any networks or any kind of ways to change things. So my first question to people would be like, what's the change you can be personally in your tiny sphere of influence? You interact with people, right? That's change, positivity, uplift, questions, curiosity. And then what's that next level that you can connect into, right? Okay, and, and it, it goes to, I can't remember who the quote comes from, but you know, um, be the change that you want to see in the world. That starts with you. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Asif, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? I know you're all over LinkedIn. You're all sorts of places, but what's the best place if they want to get in touch? I think LinkedIn probably uh, only because I, I, I do share stuff there. I do take a bit of time to responding uh, to individuals only because of the amount of messages I get, but I am more than happy if anyone wants to engage wants to explore, you know, anything that I've talked about to, yeah, send me a message and I'd, I'd love to connect. Beautiful. Asif Sadiq, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you got loads of ideas on how you can be the change and disrupt well-being in your world and your workplace. If you want to hear any more about our guests or the resources we mentioned, check out our show notes. And of course, find your workplace benefits at perks.com and all your strategy or training needs at petrabelzebor.com. I'm so excited for future conversations. Please do join us for the next episode of Disrupting Wellbeing with massively interesting conversations and guests who will give you practical ideas to be the change you want to see in the world. See you next time.